Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Molly Ryder. Welcome to the podcast, More Milk, Please, baby feeding stories from moms plus like me and you. This podcast is designed to be a safe space for women plus to come together and share baby feeding stories. Whether you are expecting or thinking about having kids, a mom, non-binary, an aunt, grandma, or a caregiver, you are welcome because we hear it all. (laughs) From breastfeeding and pumping to tube feeding, bottles, formula, frozen milk, and weaning, our worldwide community is here connecting over some of our most nerve-wracking and intimate moments. I am so glad you're here, dear listener. Oh my goodness, my mom's plus. I hope that you find connection and belonging as you listen. And if this podcast, or me, or our guests, or the stories mean something to you, it would mean the world to me if you'd be willing to take 30 seconds to rate and review the podcast. It helps new Moms Plus find us so these stories can support even more baby feeding adults out there in the wild world of parenting. To do this, just go to the More Milk Please show page on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and just hit the plus sign in the top right-hand corner. Of course, the more stars you're willing to give, the better. (laughs) And I so appreciate hearing your thoughts. So if you could please leave a comment, that'd be amazing. I check and read them all and feel immense joy over each one. So thank you, thank you. So much love and hugs. All right. Today, I'm interviewing Chloe Adams. Chloe is the doula and educator behind Midland Doula in Midland, Texas. She started her journey as a birth worker after the birth of her first daughter in 2021. And that's when it quickly became clear that helping families through this beautiful transition of birth is what she was meant to do. She is a certified birth and postpartum doula certified birth instructor, and she holds an advanced certification in the body ready method, as well as assisting VBACs and preventing C-sections, which I have to say is so amazing. You can find her on all social media channels at Midland Doula or her website, midlanddoula.com. You should definitely check her out. I have really enjoyed following Chloe on Instagram. So definitely check out her videos. They are very cool. Chloe, welcome to More Milk, please. Thank you for joining. I really appreciate you being here. Sorry, my breast that baby is a little fussy now. (laughs) (laughs) So cute, so cute. So welcome, Chloe. So excited to have you here. And wondering if you can share a little bit about you and your family. So like you said, I'm Chloe and I am a birth and postpartum doula and birth educator. Um, Birdie, my three-month-old, is here with me as well. Um, You know, breastfed babies have to just be conjoined with you at all times. Mm -hmm. But I, like you said, I'm based in Midland, Texas. I was born and raised in, you know, West Texas oil patch. And I left for school in 2012. I went to the University of Texas at San Antonio. And after our first daughter was born, we moved back to Midland, you know, just for that family support. (laughs) 
All good. All good. <laughs> um, but yeah, we moved back to Midland for just that family support aspect. I was also like really struggling with really bad postpartum depression, anxiety, rage, like all of the alphabet postpartum soups that you can think of. I was suffering from after the birth of our first daughter. So we moved back and that's when I got into birth work because I also, you know, being a birth worker takes a lot of family support, but we, my husband and I, he's a veteran. He's also a chef. So we eat very well in this house and nice. uh, we have two little girls. We have a two-year-old named Gracie and then our 10 week old named Birdie. And we also have a Husky and a French bulldog. So our house is chaos. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. A big full family. I love it. Well, I'm curious before your first, what was your knowledge of breastfeeding? Like did, had you researched it? Did you just kind of go with the flow? What were you thinking? So I grew up in a breastfeeding family. Mm-hmm. And so my perception of breastfeeding was that it was always just this really amazing natural thing, which it is. But because I had never been, I guess, in tune with some of the difficulties that the women in my family experienced with breastfeeding, I just thought it was going to be this easy thing I didn't think to do any type of breastfeeding education around it and really set myself up for success or with, for failure with my first daughter. Um, because I just thought that it was easy. I thought it was going to be natural. I didn't know, you know, anything about ties. I didn't know that my 36 weeker could lack the inability to latch, which, you know, we'll get into all of that later, but I did not set myself up for success at all. That is really challenging when you come from a breastfeeding family and like it, it just looks like it's happening naturally and there's no nothing to learn. And then, oh man. <laughs> well, it's, and you know, I'm the only one out of my mother's five children that did not have a lip tie, but oh, wow. I didn't know that. And yeah. no one knew anything about ties, you know? So it's not like I was like privy to that information. Well, like maybe I should be looking out for lip ties with my kids and things like that. Right. Right. So I know you've mentioned to me that your uh, first daughter's birth was traumatic. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about when she was born and I'm assuming it didn't go to plan. Yeah. So a little bit of a trigger warning. I initially, I was going to give birth at a birth center and I'm so happy that that did not work out. Um, because when I went to my 35 week appointment with my midwife, cause I had switched to a hospital midwife at that point. Um, I had these like bruises and scabs all over me from itching. And she was like, what is going on with you? And I was like, I am itching nonstop. I am like a cricket in my sleep, rubbing my you know feet against my legs. I am miserable. And immediately like it got very serious. And she was like, I'm pretty sure you're suffering from this thing called ICP. We are going to book you for an induction right at 36 weeks. I'm going to take your bile acids, but I'm pretty sure this is what you have. Um, make sure you're keeping up with your kit counts because your baby could die between now and your induction. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, so that and was what fun. is ICP? Oh, basically it's obstetric oh. cholestasis, but what happens is your body stops being able to process bile acids. And so those bile acids start backing up into your bloodstream, which in turn backs up into your placenta. So basically it's an incredibly uncomfortable condition to suffer from, but it can also poison your baby. Um, it causes like one of the main things is stillbirth. Um, it can also cause meconium aspiration in the womb. It can just cause a host of issues for you and your baby. So it's relatively rare, but we found out after the fact that it's my mother-in-law had four ICP pregnancies 
So it's genetic. And my husband is Hispanic and it's more likely to affect people with Hispanic heritage. Wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Another reason to be sharing these stories. Exactly. So, and now I'm on the board of ICP care, which is great because I can spread some awareness, but yeah, so I went to this appointment thinking, Oh, you know, I'm a first time mom. I've got seven weeks left. I had my doula, you know, like I thought I was going to have this beautiful, natural, amazing birth go in for my induction. And I also have Ehlers-Danlos, which wow. is a connective tissue disorder. And so people with Ehlers-Danlos tend to dilate very quickly. Um, we tend to have precipitous labors. And I didn't know that I had Ehlers at the time, but going into my induction, everything started off beautifully. They started me on a very low dose of Pitocin and a folly bulb. And within three hours I had gone in at a one and the folly bulb had fallen out of me. Wow. Insane. It's also impressive that at 36 weeks, you were already at a one. Yes. Um, (laughs) So that's kind of like insane for a folly bulb to fall out. Basically my induction was going really well. I got to six centimeters and, you know, I wasn't feeling any pain, which like a lot of my moms as a doula by six centimeters are like, I mean, that's almost transition. So they're right. dying at that point. And I was just coping really well, even with Pitocin and being dilated to a six. And then I gave birth at a teaching hospital. So shift change happened and a new resident came in and immediately her attitude was just horrible. It was my mom, my husband and my doula in the room with me. And she didn't say hello to any of us. She did not introduce herself to any of us. Like immediately the vibes were just off, like so off to the point that my mom and my doula did not want to leave me with her when I told them to just like go home, like we'll keep you guys updated, you know, like we're still doing this induction thing. And so they left. And then at some point in the night, the doctor is trying to perform a cervical check on me in my sleep. The resident, yes. And I was sexually assaulted in college in my sleep, in my own bed, a roommate let a friend of ours in and he sexually assaulted me. So like, I'm like more sensitive to that than like other people would be. And so immediately my husband was like, don't do that again. It freaked me out, you know, but again, she did not say a single word to us. Like the whole night, she only spoke about me in third person to the nurses. What? And then she was like, well, let's do another dose of side attack. Because after that cervical check, basically all of my progress stopped. Like I did not dilate a single centimeter more after that. And um, so she did, she ended up doing two doses of Cytotec. She continued to try to do cervical checks on me throughout the night without my consent. Like I would wake up to her prying my legs open. Um, Yeah. And at one point, like, I was like, can you at least wait for like my husband to wake up? Because he was asleep in the chair next to us. And she was like, made a big deal about like, she was complaining to the nurse that I was being non-compliant. And then like at some point in the night, um, she tried to up my Pitocin to 27, which is pretty ridiculous. Wow. And so her and the nurse were screaming about it in the hallway. By the end of that 12 hour span with her, I had gone from a six, a negative one station to a four and a negative (laughs) three station with my first daughter. So I didn't know at the time that of course, you know, like feeling unsafe or like going through a traumatic experience and labor will stop your labor, which I grew up around livestock. So I should have known that, but next resident that we really liked really, really liked. We made her a lasagna after the fact came in because she had been my doctor the day before. And she was shocked that I was still there. And she was like, well, we can break your water. Mm -hmm. We're not going to give you more 
Cervidil because that other doctor had been inserting it incorrectly twice. Um, So we can break your water and then you're on a 16 hour time clock or we can do a Mm C-section. Those were my two choices. Or she was like, we can send you home. In retrospect, I wish that I had just gone home, Um, but I opted for the C-section to me at the time that felt like the most empowered decision that I could make. Yeah. Took me in for my C-section. They gave me ketamine during my spinal block without my consent, which completely made me forget the birth of my daughter. Like I I genuinely like don't remember the first 14 hours after she was born. Um, And then during um, when she was born, she was born with extremely low blood sugar, but they didn't communicate any of that to us. So then my daughter immediately like gets whisked away. My husband had to punch a hole in the hospital wall to get any answers because then like the head of pediatrics had to come and be like, why aren't you giving this man any information about his baby? He is clearly the father. Right. Um, So that was just like a whole mess. So then I have this baby and I'm like trying my best to breastfeed in the hospital. And like I said, I come from a breastfeeding family. So like I do relatively know like a good latch looks like and things like that. And I, something was just wrong in the hospital. She was screaming nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could just tell like something was up. And so we had like five lactation consultants from university hospital come in and all five of them said, Oh mama, you're fine. You're just a first time mom. Like she doesn't need that much milk. Like it's fine. Not a single one watched her latch, not wow. a single one. The only person that actually tried to watch her latch was a pediatric resident had children and had breastfed. And she tried to help me. But that was like the most help I got in the hospital. So we left the hospital and they let us leave, even though she had lost 12% of her birth weight. Wow. So then I'm a first time mom. I don't know what's normal, what's not normal. Right. And we go home and she just screamed the three days we were at home. She screamed nonstop. There was one night my sister came in from Chicago and my sister's an experienced mom. And she came in from Chicago and she walked 20,000 steps with our daughter Mm -hmm. trying to get her to calm down so that I could sleep because I'm like, I'm like dealing with the fallout of this birth trauma that I don't even realize I have yet. Like we're not sleeping. She's just screaming nonstop. Mm -hmm. So we end up going to her first wellness check. It was on a Saturday. And I mean, she didn't even like fit into preemie clothes. My daughter was so small. She was five pounds, 14.9 ounces. So she was tiny. Right. And excuse you. (laughs) She, we go to the appointment and like, they're immediately like very serious after taking her vitals. And after like 30, 40 minutes, they come in and they tell me your baby has lost 15% of her birth weight and she is hypothermic. We're taking her in an ambulance to the NICU right now. And I'm like stunned. I'm shocked. It's like, you know, going to my birth and you're going to that 35 week appointment thinking I have seven weeks. And it's like, I go to my first, my baby's first wellness check and we're leaving in an ambulance. And they told me, had we not started her on formula the night before, because my sister-in-law was like, Chloe, like there's something wrong. Like, please just give her formula or something. Yeah. You can get some type of peace. They told me if I hadn't started her on formula the night before, she would have died the night before. What? Like she would not have made it through the night with how severe the hypothermia and weight loss was. So then we get like taken to the NICU in an ambulance. Like they've got her in this like crazy machine to like keep her warm. It was just like this whole thing. So then we ended up being in the NICU for 10 days. Wow. And I was so traumatized by breastfeeding at that point. Cause yeah. I was like, I don't want to kill my baby. I was right. just pumping, pumping, pump. But then because I, I see, because <laughs> I had not done 
the breastfeeding education, I didn't realize that I needed to be up and pumping every two hours. And we were so blessed to have the help that we did during that time. But it also meant that like people were like, just sleep, just sleep. So I wasn't getting up every two hours to pump and things like that. So by the time we got home from the NICU, my supply was, I mean, I was still able to pump enough to supplement in her bottles with formula, but she was definitely not getting, I mean, she was nowhere near like where we are now with my three month old where she's completely exclusively breastfed. So I tried to pump for a little bit after that. And it was just kind of like a mess because, you know, I wasn't getting up every two hours and I wasn't doing what I needed to do because I didn't know what I needed to do. Right. Then after the fact, we found out that being born at 36 weeks, it's really common for 36 weekers to lack the fine motor development to be able to latch. And we found that out in the NICU. It's like, why didn't the hospital tell us that? Yeah. Why did they let us leave with a 36 weaker who had lost 12% of her birth weight? Right. Clearly lacking fine motor development. Yeah. Cause it's like 10% and they start to get worried usually. Right. Yes. So the whole thing was just insane. It was incredibly traumatic. Um, Like I said earlier, I ended up with really, really bad postpartum depression, rage, anxiety, like everything that you can think of, I ended up developing and it just was a mess. The whole thing was a mess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this all originally started because they, I want to say OBGYN, but that's not who it was. It was a midwife. She was diagnosed- a, yeah. So my, my midwife diagnosed me with ICP right. and they literally got my bile acid results back as soon as they were wheeling me back for surgery. And they were only at an 11, which is diagnosable. Anything above 10 is diagnosable for ICP, but I could have waited potentially three more weeks before I had to be induced. That's so it. that was a little frustrating to find out after the fact, Yeah, but yeah. you know, everything happens for a reason. (laughs) At least that's what I believe. I know some people, but I do genuinely think that because that whole experience is what led me to doing what I am doing now. Yeah. Yeah. And you had her in 2021. So there was, was COVID still an issue at the hospital or what was that? Yes. Um, It was very abnormal that I was allowed to have the support people in the room that Mm -hmm. I had. And I was very lucky that my doula had a good relationship at university with those providers And that my midwife who my midwife was who she was because my midwife also teaches at Utesca. She teaches um, in the nursing and um, medical schools. Wow. All right. So it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So with your first, you know, it sounded like you're supplementing the formula with some breast milk. How long did you do that before you just switched fully to formula? About three months. And then I remember that last pump that I did, I didn't even get half an ounce. And I was like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I doing this? She's had three months of at least getting a little bit of breast milk. So that was my last pump. And then I tried to latch her one last time and she latched, but then it was like, my supply was so dead that it just, you know, too frustrating for her at that point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so hard because like I had to pump a lot in the beginning too. And, and just to get anything is like, it felt like I'm like, come on, pumps work. Yes. <laughs> it's so hard. Well, and then we ended up, so my daughter like had a horrible, horrible colic. My first daughter, I mean, it was awful. Like I'm talking, she cried 20 hours a day, which definitely mm. contributed to the postpartum rage. But we ended up finding out that she had an elemental allergy to mm. dairy. Oh, 
So she ended up having to be on $120 a can Neocate for formula. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a whole adventure, even getting her diagnosed with the allergy because people just were not taking me seriously. We had an emergency room doctor when she was eight weeks old, tell us that she was manipulating us. And I'm like, she doesn't have object permanence. (laughs) Your daughter is very advanced. She can already manipulate. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Wow. Well, good for you for continuing to advocate for her and you. And I recently interviewed another mom who similarly, her daughter was diagnosed with dairy allergy. And so ultimately stopped breastfeeding because it was just going to take too long for like the dairy in her breast milk to get out of her baby system and then out of her system and like all the things. And you're talking like, you know, weeks and that's a quarter of a baby's life. And yeah, yeah. Well, that and just there's dairy and everything yeah. anyway. So it's already so hard. I had one of my doula moms, she was heartbroken that she had to give up breastfeeding because her daughter was just having these God awful ratches. But as soon as she gave gave up breastfeeding, her daughter like stopped having the horrible diaper rash, but she had PCOS and which I have as well. So I can understand, but she had to have such a strict diet to even get pregnant that it just, she was like, I can't do that again. Like I can't go through the whole non-dairy thing. (laughs) Totally. Also, if you're a breastfeeding mom, thinking about breastfeeding, or are an underproducer like me, get your hands on my free 10 best breastfeeding and pumping tips because you deserve an easier, pain-free experience. Seriously, I want you to feel victorious in your breastfeeding and pumping. So go to mollyrider.com forward slash top 10 milk tips to get your copy today. So at the time, what, what was the pump that you were using? So with my first, I used the hospital Mandela, which I hate. I think they're (laughs) terrible. (laughs) Like they're awful. Um, I have a story from my second with that one too. And then I had a Zomi, I believe it is. And then I had, oh, I had my mom cozy, like the very first wearable mom cozy that came Mm. out and that pump was great. But again, I didn't do any education. So I didn't realize like, no, Chloe, get the S1, get the S1, just get the Spectra S1, pay the $90 upgrade. It'll be worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you were pumping, did you have any like favorite or helpful accessories at like your pumping, pumping spot? So I'm a, I'm a big fan of a hand pump. Okay. Um, Even now it's what I prefer to use. To me, I just, it's, especially if you're dealing with pain in the beginning or you have a baby like I have that likes to just be on the boob 24 seven and you get sore nipples. Mm -hmm. If you need to pump, it's so nice to like be able to control that. I love a hand pump and I also love the Haka. Like I just love the Haka multiple times a day. I put it on the other side to catch letdown. I just, I think a Haka and a hand pump are a must have. And I don't think people talk about hand pumps enough. Yeah. How did you discover them? My doula came over and explained to me, you know, you're not getting as much milk as you should be with your machine pumps because the viscosity of colostrum is so different. Hmm. And that was like a game changer for sure in the very beginning pumping for her and but also like pumping for my second that like helped immensely and that's you know kind of how I got on that hand pump 
Yeah. And so the power behind it is stronger with the hand. I, I didn't discover hand it pumps just, until I was yeah, too far along. It just pulls milk out differently than a mechanical mm-hmm. pump would. And it's mm-hmm. able to get that more like lower viscosity colostrum that's like, doesn't have the fat content and everything in it. It's a yeah. lot harder to get colostrum out with a mechanical pump because it's not designed to get colostrum out because right. you have colostrum for two weeks which is, you know, a blip in your breastfeeding journey. Yeah. So using bottles with your first, do you have any tips about how to use a bottle or feeding with a bottle? Well, I knew nothing about pace feeding. Mm-hmm. We have to learn pace feeding. And so learning about pace feeding and how to do it is so important, especially if you are like still wanting to breastfeed, but then like give a bottle every once in a while, because if you're not pace feeding, then your baby's belly is going to get so big and swollen and they're just going to expect more milk than what they can even get at the breast from you. So definitely very important to research pace feeding and get good at it. Also just skip the Dr. Browns, (laughs) skip the Dr. Browns. (laughs) Terrible. I don't know why they're suggested so much. They leak, they fall apart. The way that they leak and like fall apart makes me question the quality of the plastic that they're using. But also, they're not they're not good for breastfed babies. So oh, interesting. something okay. like an even flow or an avent bottle that you know the nipple is wide but also long and stretchier is going to be so much better to yeah. eat, which I had to learn the hard way. <laughs> yeah, we used an avent and that was helpful. Yes. Yeah. Also, my daughter struggled for a little bit transitioning between boob and bottle. And so we had to make the bottle slower with, you know, keeping it at two holes instead of moving up to three. Yes. (laughs) And that's another thing that you just, you don't know about. You go to the store, you grab a bottle and you don't realize that different nipples have different flows and that you have to like gradually up, you know, the nipples. And also, you know, a lot of people don't realize you're supposed to get new bottles every three months. (laughs) You're not supposed to just keep reusing those bottles, especially if you're sterilizing them properly because it breaks down the plastic a lot faster. There's just, there's so much, if you're, that's another thing. If if you're planning to breastfeed, definitely do your research on bottles as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Either way, learn the bottles. All right. Well, let's circle back and let's hear your second birth story. So with my second, um, it was a lot more empowered. I knew from the moment that I had my daughter, my first daughter, that I wanted a VBAC. And I was actually planning a home birth after cesarean with my second, Birdie. And wow, were you nervous about that at all? Or not at all? I had, I I would trust the midwife that I had with my life. Like she is amazing. Her and my husband bonded because they're both army veterans. She was a medic in the army. The big thing with me was I wanted a home birth, but he needed to feel comfortable with who we hired. Yeah. Explicitly. Like if he, because as a doula, I'm very privileged to know like everyone. in the area. So I like knew that like my top midwives who I would want to work with for home birth. And then that's who he chose. And he just loved her. But Mm. at about 30 weeks, um, I started getting this really, really intense itching again. And I texted Mm -hmm. my friend who's a hospital midwife. And I said, can you test my bile acids? And she said, sure. And lo and behold, my, you know, diagnosable is 10 and I was at a 14 already. Wow. So I risked out of my home birth, unfortunately, because Mm -hmm. it was pretty likely that I was going to have to have an induction. And then at that point with the ICP, you're just too high risk. Um, 
and it wasn't, I'm, I, I don't play with my children's health. Um, yeah. like the VBAC so, and like part of the home birth too, was I didn't have to do as much work to like get over my fears of a hospital birth. And then mm-hmm. boom, I have 10 weeks or, you know, nine yeah. to get comfortable with the idea of like, okay, I'm going to have to give birth in the hospital now, but at least I'm giving birth with my friend, Betsy, who again is another midwife that I would explicitly, you know, trust with my life and my baby's life. Yeah. And I know her birth philosophy and, you know, I just felt very comfortable with her. My husband knows her. He felt very comfortable with her, but then my itching just kept getting worse and worse Mm. and worse. And every time we tested my bile acids, they doubled or they tripled. So I went, you know, from a 13 or 14 to the next time we tested my acids, I was a 27. And then the next time we tested my acids, I was a 70 something. I started getting this like really intense feeling of dread, mm-hmm. like that there was something wrong. And at that point I was having to do, I was at the doctor four times a week. So I was doing NSTs and BPPs multiple times a week. And what are those? Asking them. So an NST is a non-stress test and it's okay. where they put, you know, the top belly monitor and the you know, mom monitor on you just to like check baby, like make sure that there's enough movement. And then a biophysical profile is where they go in and, you know, make sure baby's heart is working or lungs are working, or, you know, that they're seeing certain types of movement in baby just to, you know, make sure baby is good. And, you know, she was passing those, but I just had this really intense feeling of dread. And then I had like a serious discussion with my husband because my doctor is, you know, again, I'm so lucky to like know everyone in the birth community, but my doctor and my midwife were so supportive of my VBAC because Mm. they know me personally and they're just VBAC supportive in general. And they were like, we're fine with you going to 38 weeks. And I just did not feel comfortable. I had this horrible feeling of dread about going to 38 weeks yeah. And I, and then we got my last biopsy result back and it was just an insanely high, very serious number. And I was like, no, like give me a C-section at 36 and one, mm-hmm. like, I don't want the VBAC. It's, it's not worth my ego to get my VBAC for like my baby's health. Right. And so I'm a planner mm-hmm. and honestly, it was so nice because my mother-in-law took my two-year-old for three weeks so that was nice yeah (laughs) so like my husband and I got to like go to dinner the night before and then that morning we had a slow morning and it was kind of nice to know that I was gonna have a baby like right around 11 30 (laughs) because I know how c-sections work and I know how long they take and so that was nice it was pleasant and again because I'm so lucky to know everyone on the labor and delivery floor everyone was so committed to making that a great experience for me. Um, mm-hmm. Like I consulted with anesthesia before my C-section even happened. Like I was like, do not give me ketamine like right. at all, please. <laughs> and, you know, I talked to my doctor and my midwife about, you know, making sure that I had a gentle cesarean. And I talked to the, like the mother and baby nurses and like everyone's goal was basically to get her to me as quickly as possible in the mm-hmm. OR. So up until, you know, like they dropped the drape, everything's great. Like the song that's playing over the speakers is like one of the, like the song that I walked down the aisle to. So that was extra special, you know, and we didn't plan it like that. They just played my playlist. Wow. Really? Oh my gosh. I'm getting shivers. And then (laughs) she like comes out and, you know, they drop the drape and she's beautiful. And like, I can see all of her red hair and her red curls, but she's blue. Mm. And so they put the drape back up and 
they tried for 40 minutes to keep her off CPAP. And what happened, she had swallowed meconium in the Mm -hmm. womb, which was, you know, I'm so glad that I pushed for that 36 in one C-section. And then I didn't wait 38 weeks because a baby just sitting there in meconium, like who knows what would have happened. And then she had had a lot of decreased fetal movement leading up to my C-section but she kept passing the NSTs and the BPPs, so they weren't worried. And then when they took her out, that was like one of the first things I saw was the cord was wrapped so tightly around her body and her neck. It was like a straight jacket, which a lot of times, you know, cord being wrapped once or twice around a baby's neck isn't a big deal. But in this situation, it was <laughs> because yeah. like I said, it was like a straight jacket. So they tried to keep her off CPAP for like 30 minutes, which is a really big deal because everyone was just so invested in like making sure I had a good birth. But ultimately she did have to be taken up to the NICU. So I go back to recovery. My husband goes up to the NICU and they were like, as soon as you like can feel your legs again, you can go see your baby. And so I was like doing everything I could to like get feeling back in my legs in recovery. And I like hiked it up to the NICU So, but like the first time I like really held her, she was wearing a CPAP machine. So Mm -hmm. that was, you know, emotional. Yeah. In the NICU here, they like aren't very encouraging of breastfeeding, but that night one of the nurses came to my maternity room and was like, I'm pretty sure that she would latch if you tried. And so like, I got to initiate breastfeeding that way. It was a struggle. (laughs) every it it was a much better experience than it was with my first I think what made it a non-traumatizing experience was just the over communication and the regard that everyone had for like making sure that this was a really good experience for me yeah yeah I'm so glad the nurse came in and did that that's awesome yeah. How was it sort of leading up to everything because your first was so traumatic? Did you talk to a counselor? Like, how did you get yeah. into a good so headspace to go back? For the last two years, I've been working with a counselor who like specializes in rape and sexual assault because I experienced like sexual assault as a child and then I experienced yeah. it again in college. And so, like, that happening, it just. I think when you're a kid, you can, or you're younger, it's a lot easier to just bury things very deep. And so the sexual assault happening with my daughter and, you know, me being almost 30 at the time really brought up all of that stuff. Yeah. So I was able to like work on my control issues because that's what it caused a lot was control issues. Mm -hmm. But I I definitely had a meltdown when I risked out of my home birth because I, I'm weird. (laughs) I know. No, <laughs> no, I, but from like the time I was seven years old, I knew I wanted a home birth, like a home. Right. Home okay. Birth. Okay. <laughs> My mom accidentally had a precipitous labor on our couch. Oh, interesting. So I delivered my sister when I was seven years old. Oh, that's amazing. So I, I just always knew like I wanted a home birth. And so to like have that like ripped from me was mm-hmm. just devastating. I definitely had a meltdown, but I will say like, at least I had, because it happened at 30 weeks, at least I had six weeks to get used to the idea of a hospital birth. Mm-hmm. And I think because of all of the work that I had done for the last two years, I was able to just accept the C-section for yeah. what it was and say like, you know what, like I might not be getting like the birth of my dreams, but at least I have a say and control over what's happening. Mm-hmm. And because I was more educated, I knew going into the C-section that Birdie might end up in the NICU. Yeah. yeah. I knew that she might end up in the NICU and we knew it was a possibility that she would need respiratory support. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was a possibility that she might not be able to latch. And, right. you know, I ever, like I said, everything happens for a reason. And I just going into this had so much more knowledge and experience 
that yeah. like yeah, I did have that big meltdown, but I needed to have that big meltdown so I could just like let all of that out and accept that, you know, this is what was happening because it is what it is, right? It's the situation. Right. It sucked, but it was what it was. And like, I just wanted to make the best out of it because I did want to have a good birth experience. Yeah. Well, good for you. After your first, you know, and you started to experience the postpartum depression and all the rage, were you able to speak to anyone? Did you know what was happening? It was really hard, especially with my first, because my husband's a chef and he was working in the bar industry at the time, which is horrible hours. Mm -hmm. So we get home from the NICU, we have this new baby and he's working from 3 PM until sometimes 6 AM every day. So then he gets home and he sleeps for the majority of the day. And then I have a baby that's crying 20 hours a day and has a horrible colic. And I was so sleep deprived. Like I was just not in the right headspace. And there was one night that she had been crying and crying and crying and crying. And I just, I couldn't get her to stop. And I was doing everything I could. And I just had this thought cross my mind. Like, well, if I put a pillow over her face, she'll stop Mm -hmm. screaming. And Mm -hmm. I immediately was horrified. And I called my mom who lives here in Midland And we were still in San Antonio and I told her what happened and she sent a wellness check to come to the house. She told me to put the baby in another room. And I, until that moment, didn't realize how bad it was. Yeah. Oh, good for you for reaching out to your mom. And I love her response. Yes. She, but then like, you know, I put her in another room and she cried for two hours like that. Right. Yeah. It was just, but I didn't realize how bad it was until then. Mm -hmm. And I'm also the type of person that like, not the healthiest thing, but I do, I get a lot of my self-worth from how productive I am. Mm-hmm. And before I had kids, I had like a high profile career. I was extremely successful. I was very well connected. So to go from being at Facebook before my maternity leave, right? Facebook to, okay, now you're a stay at home mom with a baby that cries 20 hours a day and you're not doing anything productive because now I, now I see, you know, like being a homemaker a little differently, but at the time I was like, I'm just sitting here all day, you know? So that like definitely contributed a lot to the postpartum depression as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just even like not exercising your brain in the same way. Yeah. And like, and you know, it was still the pandemic and all of my friends are having babies too. So like everyone's wrapped up in their own things on top of it being in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so with the wellness check, did they, did you um, take anything or? They, they start- came and checked on me and then, you know, they were like, at least you were like aware that that mm-hmm. was a very dark intrusive thought to have. And you immediately called someone. Yeah. So after that was when I got into counseling. And then when I got back into counseling, I started realizing what had happened to me during my birth as, you know, being a sexual assault. Right. So we did report it to the police, which the Good for you. police did nothing about it. Oh crap. They course. did not. I mean, they're notorious for that. Right. Um, and then I did report it to the hospital. And so through the hospital, she actually lost her job and had Good. her license revoked. Good. She wasn't Thank you for saving more moms. <laughs> yes. And that helped my mental health a lot to just yeah. like be able to accept that that even happened to me. Yeah. Good for you for taking such proactive action. And thank you. Yeah. I just couldn't live with myself if it happened to someone else again. Yeah. All right. Well, circling back to your second cute birdie there. So she's in the NICU and then you're able to get her to latch or it's, it takes a little while. Were there any particular tricks or things that you tried that really helped 
to get her to latch. So I will say in the NICU, they heavily discouraged me from breastfeeding mm. like very heavily. Wow. Um, she had issues with her bilirubin, which, you know, a lot of babies are jaundiced when they're first born, but it's a little bit different right. when they experience the other issues that she had. So I was pumping like 24 seven. Mm-hmm. I like literally had an alarm on my phone that went off every two hours to pump. The nurses I had in maternity were amazing and they would like literally bring me my pump every two hours. I would text her and be like, it's time to pump. And she would bring me my pump. She would have sanitized everything and she would bring it to the NICU for me so that I didn't have to leave the NICU. And like my time, yeah, she was incredible. I nominated her for Daisy. (laughs) That like helped immensely. But even at night, I was getting up every two hours, you know, sleeping. If I was sleeping back in my maternity room to pump. And then we get home and that first night with her, I'm pumping because she wasn't able to latch yet. We were still having a lot of issues with latching mm-hmm. because of the, you know, fine motor development issues. And I'm pumping because I finally got to get home to my Spectra. Cause again, I hate the Medela <laughs> at the hospital. Um, and I'm pumping with my Spectra and then the pump like explodes, it makes this, like explosion noise. And I look down cause I was like not getting anything. Like I was yeah. not getting anything at the hospital, but I was still pumping every two hours. Like I was doing what I could. I was lucky right. that my wife, who's a really good friend is also an IBCLC. And she was like, literally like, you know, supporting me and like giving me tips and stuff like that. And so I finally get to use my spectra and it's like straight up strawberry milk. Like, wow. and the explosion had like come from my nipple and it was like <laughs> a clog, like hanging halfway out of my nipple. Oh, Like it looked like it was like, just this huge bloody mess. I mean, it was disgusting. And so then I was dealing with like horrible engorgement. Right. Like, but the big thing was I stayed pumping every two hours, even if, and that, which was so hard because, you know, you pump and then you have to feed your baby. I stayed (laughs) pumping. It was so important to me that she was not on formula after we left the NICU. Mm. Good for you. And it worked. And I was lucky enough that at around 20 weeks, I was like leaking milk. Like I was waking uh, three weeks pregnant. It was waking up like covered, drenched in milk. And my midwife was like, well, try hand expression and see mm-hmm. what you get. And then it was just like my milk came in wow. while I was pregnant, which is unheard of. And so I had over a hundred ounces in our freezer All right. of milk that we got to use in the NICU, which is great. But yeah, that was my goal. Like I did not want to be on formula when we left the NICU. Yeah. Yeah. So did you use like the Haka then? And, and yes. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I did the Haka and then I, this is another hack. Um, nice. So, you know, like Haka has like the colostrum collectors and they're like kind of expensive. It's like yeah. a six pack for like 20 bucks or whatever it is. Right. I got the um, five milliliter medicine droppers. I got a pack oh. of a hundred of them and I paid $20 and that's how I stored the milk before I gave birth. And after like when I had colostrum those first few weeks. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. So then you just like heat it up, you know, and then, you know, you right. just. You know, yeah. Like, and then it's. Yeah. <laughs> So I recommend doing that. Yeah, no, I love that tip. Thank you. Did you know that 90% of mothers felt lonely after having children and 54% felt friendless after giving birth? This according to a recent UK survey of more than 2000 mothers. I can definitely relate. 
I had a hard time after my daughter was born, which is why I started my free private Facebook group for Moms Plus called More Milk Please, Strong Supportive Mamas. Come join us at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash more milk, please, and find the connection and belonging you desire. Look forward to seeing you there. So how has it been since you've been home? And so yeah, it took, it took two weeks mm-hmm. to get onto the breast with a shield. Okay. So that was like a big goal of mine was to just get her on the breast because I felt like I was losing my mind pumping as much as I was. Yeah. Um, and so we got her to the breast, which is really, really big deal. Yeah. But then she was having this like horrible gas and I swear she had like the most ranted toots. She still does. But I mean, these toots could clear out a room and I'm like, this is a <laughs> two week old. Right. Um, she was having problems gaining weight. Um, her latch was like extremely painful, even with the shield. Mm-hmm. I was suffering from like a severe oversupply. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was just engorged constantly. It didn't matter how much I pumped or I fed her. And basically she had all of the telltale signs of ties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, I'm very lucky to know most of the people in our birth community. So like we see five lactation consultants and all of them, but two agreed that she has some type of type of restriction. So then we get sent to a pediatric dentist in Lubbock. Okay. Who love him, but he knew that she had a revision, but he didn't feel that the revisions were necessary. Mm. And so, like I said, my siblings had lip ties, but we didn't know that that's what that was. Right. So like her lip tie was just really bad, her tongue yeah. tie. So we went back to the lactation consultant that had referred us and she was like horrified that he hadn't done the revision. She was like, I would not right. have sent you to Lubbock, which is two hours away from us. Yeah if I didn't think that she absolutely needed those done, yeah. she was like, you know, a lot of times a lip tie will correct itself because you know, right. it's clumsy and they fall and it rips. She was like, this lip tie is not going anywhere. Yeah. She was gonna, going to end up needing braces and a phrenectomy as an adult if we didn't uh, now. Right. So went to another pediatric dentist. And at this point um, it was around eight weeks and I had just gotten her off the shield because mm-hmm. I was so sick of it. I was so sick of the dang shield. It's so hard to put on the middle in the middle of the night. I'm glad that I had it. I'm glad I was able to use it because I would not have been able to get her to the breast those first few weeks while she learned that fine motor development. Yeah. But hate the shield. Yeah. <laughs> and I had just taken her off the shield and the, her latch sucked. Like it was horrible. It was so painful, but I just like wanted to be off the shield. I wanted to be done with it. And I take her to this other pediatric dentist at about eight weeks. And she was like, this is one of the worst tongue and lip ties I think I've ever seen. Wow. So she did the surgery that day. And when I tell you it was instantly better, like she wasn't, her gas was gone. She started pooping every day versus like pooping once a week and being miserable, like the whole day and a half before she went to the bathroom, her weight gain issues have gone away. She's gaining really, really good weight. Now her latch, I mean, is fantastic. You just, everything like got so much better, like almost overnight. Amazing. Good. Yeah. Now we're. 12 weeks out. She turned 12 weeks old this week and Aww. she's exclusively breastfed. Um, I still pump in the morning and then in the shower, I'll put my hawkers on to just like yeah. catch anything. Cause I always leak in the shower or the bath. I always leak. 
but she's like pretty much on the breast. We give her a bottle at 7 p.m. every night so that my husband can feed her and I can get a break from mm-hmm. the cluster feeding because she is she's a big cluster feeder at night still. Yep. <laughs> but it's it's like a night and day experience. Nice. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Congratulations. Yeah, it's it was and then when people are like, oh, that's so nice that you got to breastfeed your second. I'm like, no, this was like hard fought. Like it took yeah. five lactation consultants, it took eight weeks on a shield, it took two pediatric dentists and fifteen hundred dollars right. for a tie revision to be able to like be where we're at. Yeah. And like I'm very lucky to have access to those types of resources because other women aren't or you know other moms would hear well your baby doesn't have a tie and think like okay well I should trust this person when they shouldn't it was it's funny I was literally talking to my husband this morning about how pediatricians are not qualified to to help with breastfeeding unless they've you know taken additional courses and things like that because in medical school they get three hours or a four hour presentation on breastfeeding and that's it So a lot of people take what their pediatrician or maybe one lactation consultant says, and then that's it. And they don't know like that there are more options or that maybe they should get a second opinion. Yeah. Or a third or a fourth. (laughs) Yeah. Or fifth. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. I really appreciate you sharing your story of perseverance because it, it can be so defeating and you're exhausted at that time and don't necessarily know. And so it's really important to hear these stories where it's like, yes, just keep pushing because mom knows best. And you're going to well, like, follow your gut. Like if something yeah. feels off, like follow that and like advocate for your baby, which yeah. like in my situation with my first, like I didn't know to advocate for her, you know, right. I didn't know what I should and shouldn't be doing. So like, don't feel bad if you didn't realize yeah. that these are things that you should be doing because I sure as hell didn't. But I'm like, I'm glad I pushed on the tongue, you know, tie releases and the lip tie release because that helped significantly. But yeah, yeah, I'm just very lucky to have the resources that I have. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, speaking of, you know, you being so involved in the birth community, can you share a little bit of your story about starting Midland Doula and what you're up to now? Yeah. So um, I've always been obsessed with birth. I initially, when I went off to school, I thought, well, like maybe I'll be an OBGYN. So I was on the pre-med track mm-hmm. and then switched my major to business. <laughs> I could not get past organic chemistry. Mm-hmm. And so I've always like, and I know I was put on this earth to help women. Like mm-hmm. that is like what I'm very passionate about. So after the birth of my daughter with my first and just seeing like how much support was needed and like the vital role that my doula played and like helping me like prepare, but also like being there for me postpartum when I was dealing with everything I was dealing with. I was like, I think this is what I want to do. And, you know, of course I had to have a discussion with my husband about it because it takes a lot of time and support to be a birth worker. You have to have that support behind you because I can't, if I don't have someone to watch my kids, I can't go be with a client. (laughs) you know, when they go into labor, um, I'm on call for, you know, two weeks before and two weeks after people's due dates, things like that. But I got my certifications and I launched my business last year and it's been so fun. I, you know, because I did want to be back so badly, I ended up specializing in that, but also because I have had such severe birth trauma. I work a lot with moms who do have birth trauma. Mm -hmm. So I get to like work with a lot of second time moms or, you know, 
third or whatever, or people that are aiming for VBACs. And I think it's extra special because to like help someone have a good experience after they've had such a bad experience and, you know, leave a birth thinking, wow, that it's just as life-changing as it is for them. It's life-changing for me to like be there with them during that experience. But right now I am on maternity leave because it's a little hard to leave (laughs) to go to a birth when you have a three month old. So I really wanted to make the most of my maternity leave. So right now I'm working on creating online classes. I teach in person, but I'm working on creating online classes. Um, I'm going to have a VBAC centered one and then just a regular birth class. And then I'm also working on one specifically for dads because Mm. I think dads play such a vital role in helping birth outcomes. Yeah. And like, my husband knew nothing with our first and then he knew everything with our second and the way that he advocated with me for our second was like it made me fall in love with him all over again you know just to like have someone be there for you in that way and so i'm working on those and then um i'm also working so i'm finishing up my body ready method certification super excited about that congratulations one of the main reasons for C-sections is lack of progression, which is really just, or failure to progress, which is, you know, failure to wait. But a lot of times failure to progress beyond, you know, just not waiting is your baby is in a really weird wonky position. And as a doula, I'm obsessed with the biomechanics of the pelvis. Mm. Um, So there's a lot that I can do for you in birth, but the whole part, point of body ready method is to make it to where I don't need to do those fancy maneuvers on you in birth because your pelvis has enough room for your baby and you have learned to move and breathe in a way that like makes your labors very quick and easy for you. That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. During mine, I went to a chiropractor so helpful uh, just for that reason. I was like, all right, let's get the pelvis lined up. <laughs> exactly. You were like, if you're dealing with sciatica and you know, so much happens to your body when you're pregnant. So it's just very important to, you know, do the care in pregnancy, but also after the fact and postpartum is so important. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I love your story. And I love that, like from giving, helping to bring your sister into the world (laughs) at seven to like now being, you know, the Midland doula, it's so awesome. And I think eventually I I might go to midwifery school. I've looked at like an accelerated BSN Mm. program and going to nurse midwifery school. So we'll see. Yes. Yes. And just like bringing out a course about VBACs, I think is so important. So I love that you're focusing right now to so much misinformation. Yeah. Insane amount of misinformation. Yeah. That's so cool. Awesome. Well, before we wrap up, are there any like tips or resources or products that you want to recommend to moms? I know you've mentioned a lot along the story. So just yes. any you want to call um, out. Breastfeeding wise, the, there's a book called Natural Hospital Birth mm-hmm. that I love the breastfeeding section. I mean, the whole book is incredible, especially if you're like planning to give birth in the hospital. But the breastfeeding section is top notch. Nice. I definitely recommend reading that before you give birth and then like rereading it, you know, a little bit postpartum if you're struggling with breastfeeding. Love that book. I recommend it to every single one of my clients. And then also a haka. Get the haka. Learn how to use the haka. It has many uses. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Use the haka to collect letdown. You know, they have the ladybug ones too, which are fantastic. Yeah. And even if you're not 
planning on pumping, like please get your flange size measured mm-hmm. right after you give birth and please learn how to effectively use your pump and always upgrade and get the S1. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Love it. Love it. Excellent. Very good recommendations. All right. So we'll move into a little rapid fire round. So with your first, what was her, what were some of her first solid foods that she ate? Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, nice. We gave them, I'm I'm very, I'm a big stickler on like waiting for your, you know, your baby's bowels to like be less permeable before you give them food. But Mm -hmm. we did it a little bit early and we gave her Thanksgiving dinner. That's amazing. Did she she have a favorite? Mashed potatoes. Yes. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Do you find yourself to be a morning person or a night person? More like a midnight to 6 a.m. person. Which All right. I guess is night. I'm just way more productive when everyone else is asleep. <laughs> nice. Uh, coffee, tea, something else? Coffee. Cold brew all day. Mm-hmm. I'm a big Starbucks fan. Yes, yes. Well, and being in Texas with like all the heat waves, cold brew has got to be yeah. clutch. Yes. Nice. All right. So with your littles, what is your go-to recharge activity? Taking a bath and reading a book in the bathtub and not letting myself scroll, reading a book in the bathtub. Mm, Yeah, that's a good call out. Um, Do your, does your two-year-old have a favorite bedtime story or do you like to read certain ones? She loves the biscuit books. She loves the biscuit books. And one of her gifts from her sister when she was born was we got her, it's like a massive book of like the five minute biscuit bedtime stories, but that is her favorite. Nice. Nice. Oh, that's adorable. And what's one thing that your partner does that really helps you out? He packs our daughter's lunch every night so that I don't have to do it in the morning and it makes our mornings way less chaotic. And when I'm pumping, he always sanitizes my pump parts for me. Oh, that's awesome. That's the best. Yay. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share? No, I just thank you for having me on. And also, with breastfeeding, take it day by day. If you're getting small improvements every day, that is the goal. And your breastfeeding journey doesn't have to start off wonderful or amazing or perfect to have a wonderful, amazing or perfect breastfeeding journey. Yeah. Thank you for that. And right now, where are you most active? Where can, where should people go and find you? I'm a social media girly. So I'm literally everywhere. Nice. Um, TikTok, Instagram are my favorites. I have my Facebook group, but yeah, I post all day. I just let all of my intrusive thoughts win and I post <laughs> social media. I love it. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Chloe, for coming on. This has been amazing. I really appreciate you sharing your stories and all of your insights. It's the best. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, Leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts and share with a fellow Mama Plus. And if you're interested in coming on to share your own baby feeding story, head to mollyrider.com and click on share your story. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. Bye.